I'm not Joel Salatin. <laughs> well, I want to introduce Joel. Um, if you're, again, if you're joining us for the first time or you weren't around the last couple of weeks and you haven't heard that we're having a guest speaker today and we're taking a break from the book of James. We've been going through the book of James for a couple of months now and we'll pick back up again next weekend. Don't worry, we'll be back. Uh, but in the meantime, we had this wonderful opportunity. We had Joel in to do a workshop at the church yesterday. Had about 275 people sign up for the workshop on homesteading because it's such a point of interest in our culture these days. Not everybody's interested, but a lot of people are. But Joel is such a unique voice in our culture today. Uh, and uh, we are just so privileged to have him with us. He is an international speaker. He is just as comfortable sitting on the front porch of the farm store talking with an old friend as he is presenting before the King of England. You know, I mean, he's, he's spoken all over the world, just got back from South America, he's spoken all over Australia, Africa, Europe, here, universities around the world. He is a, uh, an interesting, he's a thinker, but he's a farmer, and that's a beautiful combination. Uh, he's been in countless documentaries. He's got, I believe, over 15 books anyway at this point. When I met him, it was 10, and uh, he's a he is the only YouTube influencer to never have posted a YouTube video himself. Uh, but he is a YouTube influencer. A lot of people know Joel because they've seen his videos on YouTube. Uh, and he is the most famous farmer in the world. He is an expert in farming. He's an expert in food. He's an expert in freedom, uh, creation care, and taking care of the planet that God has given us. And he is a person of deep faith. Um, I met Joel back in 2016 when I was going through a very difficult time. I was on a sabbatical and um, my health wasn't good and uh, emotionally I was struggling. And uh, his book, uh, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, had just come out. And uh, I picked it up and I read it. And uh, it was his first book. It was his 10th book, but it was his first book written specifically to the Christian community. And I found myself so challenged in what, the way I thought about things. And, and, uh, and it made such sense to me that I finished the book. I sent him an email and said, hey, Joel, uh, you don't know me. I'm nobody. I'm just a pastor in Wheeling, West Virginia. But I would love to stop by the farm and shake your hand and maybe have a prayer together. And uh, the next day I got a phone call and it was Joel and he said, why don't you come down and spend a couple days with us? He could tell that I needed help. And um, I'm going to tear up. Um, so he has spoken into my life over the last eight years in ways that I can't even express. He has informed the way that I lead um, it, here at the church and beyond in the way I live my life. He is an outside-of-the-box thinker. He challenges the orthodoxy and the paradigms that we all walk in without ever questioning them. And I am so excited to be able to present him to you today, my good friend and mentor, Joel Salatin. Let's make him welcome. Thank you, Chris. Good morning. It is a privilege and an honor to be here. <clears throat> Growing up, I grew up in a Christian home. Our family had come to the farm in 1961 <clears throat> to the most worn out, gullied rock pile in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. It had been absentee owned for a long time. It had been a land of plenty. Governor Spotswood in 1740 sent the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe to the valley to scope it out. They wrote back, they said, everywhere we rode, we could take the grass and tie it in a knot above the horse's saddle. It was a land of plenty. And over 200 years of care, supposed care, by good Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians, it had been reduced to bones, gullies 16 feet deep. Rocks, three to five feet of topsoil had washed off. <clears throat> and as I grew up in this environment, in a family that embraced non-chemical agriculture, <clears throat> it was quite a dichotomy from the faith community. We were conservative Christians, went to church, and all of our buddies in church made fun of compost because we all know that we've been given dominion and we're supposed to subdue. And compost just doesn't, it sounds too 
hokey. Um, and so I grew up in this dichotomy. And as I got older, into the 60s and 70s with the, you know, the hippie, hippie revolution, uh, the beaded, beardless, braless uh, movement, back to the land, it turned out that all of our farming friends were hippie, dope-smoking earth muffins. <laughs> and our church friends were straight-laced, you know, uh, going to McDonald's. And I started to realize this dichotomy between our, our, our faith community and where we were in our farm community. And it raised a lot of questions in my mind. Not the least of which is the notion that God sent the Israelites into a promised land flowing with milk and honey that was a gift of good land. He clearly defined their borders and then said, be fruitful and multiply. And in our modern parlance, we would say that's a recipe for starvation. How do you give us a boundaried area, tell us to be fruitful and multiply? Don't you know that you know, we're going to run out of food? And it became clear to me that the parable of the talents, stewardship, God has a desire for return on investment. And it's not just spiritually. When He saved us and redeems us and brings them to Himself, He's looking for a return on investment of His death on the cross. And, that the, and so the whole idea of, <clears throat> of, of a dichotomy between physical and spiritual went away. And I realized that this stewardship of the physical universe is a pretty big deal. And the idea that wearing out land, farming it, is not biblical any more than wearing down our immune system is not biblical. And it struck me, you know, John 3, 21, see what's on the board here. Oh, there's nothing on the board. Okay. All right. Good. We're, we're, all, we're all clear here. All right. Um, so John 3, 21 says, but he that does truth comes to the light. Now, yeah, I don't know how you feel about truth, but I like to talk about truth, catechize truth, systematize theology truth. I just don't want to do truth. But this verse says he wants us to do truth. Not just talk about it. Not just think about it. But to do truth. What is doing truth? The point is truth is, has a physical manifestation. It's not a, an Augustinian duality. Physical is bad. Spiritual is good. No. There is good physical truth. Secondly, God is interested in the mundane. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. When I re read this often, you know, I say, when I'm with a group, I'll say, it, it says, do part to the glory of God. No, it says, do all. Eating and drinking, wow, that's kind of physical. That's not just, you know, uh, thinking. That's not just spiritual stuff. It's, it's, it's actually the most mundane things of life. And, and then in Psalm 24, Psalm 24, 11, I'm sorry, Psalm 24, 1, it's a famous verse, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all they that dwell therein. The point is, it's all God's stuff. It's all God's stuff. And it struck me, if this, if I built the earth, created the earth, owned the earth, and it was all my stuff, how would I feel if I gave a gift of good land and it came to me as a skeleton and bones? How would I feel if I made fertile frogs and suddenly pesticides and chemicals made them infertile and they couldn't breed, or eagle eggs couldn't hatch, or there's a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico where I had crabs and shrimp and fisheries and now nothing can grow there because it's toxic runoff from the Ohio and the Mississippi River from our pesticide farmland. 
how would I feel if somebody treated my stuff that way? And this created me in me a deep, passionate understanding that our Christian credibility is founded in our stewardship of the physical earth. Indeed, I would say that creation, the physical creation, is an object lesson of spiritual truth. One of the reasons Jesus taught in parables was because physical truth object lessons are really good. In Deuteronomy 6, 17 and 18 says, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you, and you shall do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Now I know there's a curse. We fell, and, 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 and the land is not Eden. But if we can't bring back more soil and water, if we can't bring a redemptive capacity to the physical that we can see, how are we supposed to be bringing back a redemptive ca capacity in the spiritual where we can't see? And so, this object lesson becomes critical. And let me just go through a few, you know, ideas here of how this relates in our life. If creation is an object lesson of spiritual truth, think about abundance. You know, Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26.5 says, your threshing shall reach into the vintage this is if you walk in my statutes to keep my commandments. Your threshing, that's your grain production, shall reach into the vintage. The vintage shall reach into the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. It's a very physical manifestation. And yet today in modern American agriculture, modern thinking, we have this idea that actually nature is scarce. And it's a, it's a reluctant partner. God gave us a reluctant partner. And we've got to get it in a half Nelson and I'm going to make you and I'm going to get you and I'm going to make you produce this. Actually, God has given us a benevolent lover that wants to be caressed in the right places and wants to give us abundance. The fact is, if we had had a Manhattan Project for compost, <laughs> we would have fed the world without three-legged salamanders and infertile frogs in the dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. The problem is that most people don't embrace, don't understand this abundance mentality. You know, um, the narrow way, the broad way. Few there be that find it. That's a biblical principle. We would love for more people to find the narrow way that leads to salvation and abundance. But very few do. In fact, most of us miss that, especially physically. I, uh, I speak, as Chris said, I speak all over the world. And as I started becoming, you know, so our, our farm over the half century has now those rock piles, the soil grew up over the rocks, the gullies we planted trees in, we've made ponds, and it's arguably the most fertile farm. And people come from all over the world to see this Edenic, this Edenic manifestation of abundance. I'm not saying that Pridefully, I'm saying that um, humbly acknowledging that these principles work. 
We did not go the chemical route. My grandfather was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when it came out in the mid-1940s. And, and the nation was in the throes of do we, do we go biological or do we go the chemical approach. But as I've spoken around the world, I've been, ch- uh, um, um, I've, I've been not only challenged but actually you know, uh, sandbagged because I'm a Christian and you're supposed to be, if you're, a, you know, if you're env- environmentally friendly, you're supposed to be um, you know, in favor of teachers unions and bigger government and abortion and all those kinds of things. And, and uh, I, got, I actually got tired of being put in that box because, you know, I like compost. <laughs> and so I developed my own moniker, my own branded moniker. Uh, I said, I'm a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist lunatic farmer. <laughs> and that's now my moniker. It's on all my bios. It's what I give people to, you know, to read, to, to introduce me at places. And, um, and, and it came about because I was so struck. I mean, I do an interview for New York Times magazine, New York Times you know, newspaper, and, um, and, and the first question is, how can you possibly um, be a steward of the land and be a Christian? I was up in, uh, speaking at the University of Guelph in Ontario and uh, doing a lecture series, and my my co-speaker of the, of the lecture series spent the fir- first five minutes of his opening monologue holding a, he came in with a Bible. Oh, this will be good. This will be interesting. But he held the Bible aloft and for five minutes explained to those students how every gully, every polluted river, every broken environmental, every, you know, dead honeybee, I mean, he just went for five minutes is because of this book. Well, that's a nice act to follow. But this is the perception. And I've been in banquet meetings and been accosted by people who explained to me, you don't understand. Said, when you people, you people, Christians, when you people go to right to life rallies and sanctity of life rallies, and then about the sanctity of life, and then stop off for happy meals on your way home? We don't get it. That is, the, that is the epitome of hypocrisy because McDonald's doesn't care about the happiness of chickens. It doesn't care about stinky neighborhoods, being good to your neighbor. And it struck me, wow. So when I, as a Christian, view the hypocrisy of saving a baby whale or hugging a tree so it won't be cut down, and yet you have no concern about ripping a baby out of the womb, I, 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 I can't wrap my head around that. But they view us in the same hypocrisy when we say we respect life, we honor life, and then we patronize businesses that don't ask how to make happy pigs or happy chickens or happy tomato plants or or seek to see what is the life platform that our creator designed. And so if you go into the average church that's having a potluck and you dare to um, you dare to ask the elders and deacons, you know, could, could we have paper plates instead of styrofoam? What are you, some sort of earth muffin, tree hugging, gay, a worshiping commie pinko? And you can't even have the discussion. Let me say right up front here, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, and I'm inconsistent too, okay? And just so you know, I'm not here to purse a food cult, okay, or a farming cult. There are balances here. I, I, I'm 80-20, okay? I'm 80-20. Do I think you can have a Tyson chicken house and go to heaven? I absolutely do, all right? Okay. But Hebrews talks about laying aside, running a race, laying aside the sin and the weight that besets us. I would suggest that there are weights that aren't necessarily sin. And if God cares about it all, then we should be willing to have a discussion and ask about those kinds of things. 
We shouldn't be just sandbagged. And I realize I have a hard task here this morning because I have 40 minutes to counteract a century of faith community prejudice against the environmental movement. I understand that. But I want you to just bear with me. Hang in there, okay? I won't keep you all day. But this abundance thing is a big deal. The question is, when people come to my farm, are they leaving saying, oh, okay, so that's what abundance is. That's what God's provision is. And so I would say that my mandate is to take this land and leave more soil as God's return on investment. More water. May I say more commons? You know, in the faith community, and certainly in the libertarian community, we don't use the word commons very much. But I'm supposed to leave more commons. Yes, more species, more pollinators, more bugs. That's a good thing. How about, so, so, so if, we're, if we're doing this abundance thing, you know, uh, physically, we're able to then see how an abundant spiritual life is supposed to happen. We come to the Lord, and He wants to see more abundance. He wants to see not, not physical abundance, but spiritual abundance. He wants to see us be quicker to forgive, less vengeance, less resentment, and knowing Him more. That's our spiritual abundance. How about order? You know, Genesis 1-2, God came and he, he created order out of chaos. He moved upon, the, and there was chaos, and he created order. Genesis 1-12, Genesis 1-12, this is a spiritual concept, of course. Um, he says, he, he, made the, he made the seas, seeds, where are we? The earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Genetically modified organisms, GMOs. Faith community stays very, very silent. Aren't we supposed to be innovative? Not only do these seeds not produce, they don't even produce after their own kind. God set up order. He didn't set up where a corn would be part corn, part pig, and part butterfly. You know, if the sexual plumbing doesn't match up, it probably ain't right. And so there, are, there, is, there is an order and mankind, humans, we are, we are clever enough to overrun. My dad used to call it, we can overrun our headlights. We're pretty smart. We're made in God's image. And we can actually, we're smart enough to overrun boundaries and the order that God established. Back about 50 years ago, when Farming experts around the world took farmers like me to free steak dinners to teach us how to, how to feed cows with this new scientific approach of feeding dead cows to cows. I thought about that, and I looked around the planet. Where do herbivores eat carrion? Couldn't find one. So we and others like us didn't buy in to feeding dead cows to cows, that narrative. And for 30 years, we were told, oh, you're, you're, you're anti-science, you're anti-progress, you, you know, uh, you're not willing to take dominion. And then suddenly, we all know what happened. Bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow. And there was this big global, oops, maybe we should not have done that. We didn't buy into it, not because we hated science, not because we hated technology, not because we didn't want to steward the planet, but because there was no God-ordered pattern in which that could ever happen in nature. It doesn't happen. We didn't know there would be mad cow, but the order was enough. And so if we're going to have 
spiritual order. If we're going to present family as the beginning of, 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 of culture, if we're going to present other things into our culture as, well, this is the way God set it up. This is the way the order is. We have to start by the most foundational order things of seed bearing after its kind, fruit bearing after its kind, and respect and honor the order that God set up as a pattern in order for us to have credibility on some of the other cultural things that we're trying to present to our people. Colossians 1.17 says, Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, talking about Christ. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. A lot of the, uh, the interesting science now discovering uh, atomic, in, in the subatomic particle um, spectrum has come to the conclusion, we don't know how it all holds together. <laughs> Why didn't it all fall apart? Well, right here we're told. The sun holds it all together. And our physical universe, the sun, the earth, the sun powers us. It is solar driven through photosynthesis, through the magic of, uh, through, the, through the wonderful principle of photosynthesis takes sun energy, S-U-N. I think, I think it's just, just one of the most, you know, important metaphors in the world that the physical world runs on the S-U-N and our spiritual world runs on the S-O-N. And so when we walk out and and we see the desire of plants and leaves to, to sprout and so that no S-U-N power hits the ground, but rather hits leaves that can metabolize that into decomposable biomass. That's powerful. Am I sprouting spiritual leaves to take the S-O-N's energy? Or does the S-O-N have energy that I'm not that I'm not appreciating metabolizing. Another principle, Ephesians, Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers, darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Does everybody agree with me that the invisible world is more real than the visible world? Yes. Yes. That's a biblical principle. How do we teach that as Christians? I would suggest one of the best ways to teach it is to appreciate the role of microbes in the soil. One handful of soil holds nine billion, with a B, not million, billion individuals. Now they're really small. Okay. But think about that. Think about that. Do we regard them? Do we ask the actinomycetes, what makes you happy? <laughs> you know, when's the last time you heard somebody go into the banker for a business loan and the banker says, hmm, boy, this is a great business plan. I want to be your partner. We're going to be, we're going to be millionaires together. But I got one question to ask you. What's this going to do to the mycelia in our community? or to the earthworms in our community. You know, who thinks about that in the shower? And I would suggest that we as Christians, if we actually became the repository, the stewards, if our reputation was, wow, those guys, they're, they're all into this, this our, our dependence on this invisible umbilical, this nest of invis, invisible microbes, and they're about stewarding and taking care of the earthworms and the, and the gibberellins and the azotobacter and all these billions of critters. We can then say, and this is what I do in you know, classrooms and schools, I say, look, everybody, we're completely dependent on the invisible out here in the soil. Does everybody understand that the, that the health of the microbes and the earthworms is more valuable than Wall Street? All the kids say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you something. There's a spiritual world we don't see either. And it's more real and we're more dependent on it than what we don't see in the soil. That's an object lesson. It's an object lesson of spiritual truth. Another spiritual truth, in order for there to be life, 
there must be death. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, you know, the capsule of the gospel. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We understand life requires death. And yet today, dear people, we have mega, mega businesses, corporations, narratives saying we don't need death to have life. It's driving the vegan movement. It's driving the lab meat movement. What's the, what's the, what's the beauty of this? beauty of this? Nothing has to die. It's driving the chemical agriculture movement, chemical fertilizers. The foundation of ecology is sun creates plants that go through animals or decompose, and you get life from decomposing things. That's the way this works. That's the most foundational ecology. Life, death, decomposition, regeneration. Life, death, decomposition, regeneration. It's a circle. It's a cycle. And the notion that we can have life without something dying, when, when, when we in the faith community embrace that and endorse it as, a, as an orthodox conventional narrative in our culture, where is our object lesson for the death of Christ giving us life? And we have a fundamental difference here in worldview paradigm. Our current farming and food system is all predicated on food and farming is fundamentally mechanical and not biological. So we can interact, we can, we can move this DNA around here, we can move this gene here, we can just, it's, it's like parts on a car. Let me tell you what, there's a big difference between mechanical and biological. Mechanical doesn't heal. You can go out here today and your front wheel bearings out in your car and you can go and you can say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't lube you. Uh, do you need some rest? You know, uh, um, you need some time? I'll give you some time, okay. And when you get in that car and go, it's still going to go thump, 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 right? But biologically, we can, we can insult someone. We can, we can say a, a, a bad you know, uh, 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 an unfit word to our spouse and they can forgive us. That's biology. That's healing. We can forgive people that we don't like. That's healing. And we can deprive a cow of, of good nutrition and then give good nutrition and she just blossoms. We can hurt our hand and, and scab and a scab comes and we get new skin. You don't get new skin on your car. And so we want our food to come from this object lesson of death to life. How about diversity? Diversity is a big deal. You know, 1 Corinthians um, 12, 4 through 6 is um, you know, about the gifts, all the gifts in the, in the, in the body. I'm, I'm going to run out of time, so I've got to hurry here. But there are diversities of gifts, diversity of the same spirit. And um, I know we're all tired of hearing diversity, inclusion, and, and all that stuff, all right? But the fact is, there is diversity. But our whole food and farming system runs on non-diversity. Factory farms, monocultures of corn, soybeans, even our own diet. The Native Americans ate some 2,000 different kinds of food and plants. Today, modern Americans eat about 30 and we wonder why our microbiome is all messed up. Why? Because it's lacking half of what it needs. We're not giving it any diversity. This includes creating a habitat that truly honors the distinctiveness of something. You know, we, we as Christians, we have a, we have a kind of, um, uh, we, we have a, a spiritual jargon. You know, uh, like the word glory it's a wonderful word. We love it. But you don't hear it down on the street very much. You know, the average person that used glory. And so we have elevated glory to a very kind of, you know, we almost say it with a, with a, 
ooh, you know, glory, you know, reverential thing. But you know, the Bible doesn't make that kind of distinction. It talks about the glory of children, the glory of young men, the glory of Moab, the glory of Keter, the glory of Lebanon, the glory of Gentiles, the glory of Ephraim, the glory of a woman who has long hair, the glory of celestial, the glory of terrestrial, the glory of sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of man. Wow, that's a lot of non-divinity. So let me suggest that when you go to dinner, instead of having Chef Boyardee, you've taken, imagine this, you've taken the kids out to a farm that has pigs, and you bought a pig, and you've taken the, you probably didn't buy the pig, you bought, you know, Boston butts and, and uh, pork chops, sausage, and you've taken that home, and, and, and this farm, these pigs are, you know, they're actually being able to root in the ground, and they're being able to express their pigness, the glory of the pig. See, what is glory? You know, it's not just a divine term. It speaks to the distinctiveness, the specialness, the, 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 the physiological distinctiveness of something. Okay? So imagine we're sitting down to dinner. Kids are there. We have this pork. Okay, kids, remember? remember we went out to that farmer last week. We saw those pigs running around, and they were fully expressing their, their pigness and the glory of pigs and all that stuff. And, and, and that's why we're eating this kind of pork. So so that's an object lesson of how we're supposed to honor and respect the glory of God. What is it about a pig that makes a pig distinctive? Well, he's got a big plow on the end of his nose, you know, he's got uh, um, four legs and, you know, this, this stuff distinctive of a pig. And we say, okay, so if it matters that we, that we, um, that we honor the distinctiveness of the pig, then, well, it matters that we honor the glory of God. So what's distinctive about God? Well, you know, sovereignty and, and uh, omniscience and omnipresence. And, oh, good. So suddenly we tie, we tie our physical, we, we don't segregate our universe. We tie our physical to our spiritual. And suddenly we have all these abundant object lessons of bringing the kids up to understand that honoring the glory of God is really a cool thing, a cool thing. And it starts with honoring the pigness of the pig. Finally, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a, is a really powerful thing, of course, throughout Scripture. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that um, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And it doesn't give any conditions. It doesn't say only rich people. It doesn't say only white people. It doesn't say only northerners. It, doesn't, it, it, it says anyone. And, of course, John three sixteen, whosoever will. So, this whosoever will is a big deal. I would suggest that a food system, a farming system that is not building forgiveness into the system, resilience, you know, nature's not always kind. There's blizzards and there's tornadoes and there's drought and there's heat and cold and different things. And so, part of it, part of our, our whole uh, um, food and farming system to build forgiveness is to reduce flooding, to reduce drought problems, to reduce wind problems. And we have built in America right now the Ogallala Aquifer that covers five states in the Midwest and supports all those big pivot irrigation systems that you see when you fly over there. It's dropped a hundred feet in the last 50 years is replenishing about two inches a year, but we're dropping it by about 20 inches a year. In 50 years, it's going to be almost unpumpable. Is that a return on investment? See, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. We're not building forgiveness in. We're not building resilience in. Goodness, look at, look at uh, the spring of 2020 when all the shelves went empty. You know, on our, our farm, we didn't have a blink. We had a bunch of freezers full of meat. We had a pantry full of several hundred quarts of garden canned produce. We could eat for a year without any store shelves. So, if we build resilience and forgiveness into the system, anyone can do this. 
we have an object lesson. I want people to come to my farm and leave saying, oh, oh, so that's what forgiveness looks like. I mean, there can be shocks. There can be shocks in the system and they can handle it. There can be a big rain and they've got 20 ponds that can fill up and make sure that the downriver people don't get flooded. Or when there's a drought, they can irrigate from it. And it's not pumping from the aquifer and it's not pulling from a river, which is the commons. It's actually taking surface runoff that means the commons is full, the cup is full, and we take the excess and we store it for a future use. That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness. And, and, and this includes policy, ag policy. I don't want to get political here, but, but the fact that we have so many food police in this country that if you want to start, you know, uh, uh, making some food or butchering a chicken for your community, we got a whole plethora of food police that'll come and say, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You know, we got food deserts. If you want to, if you want to start making pot pies in your apartment and feed your, uh, a food desert in your area because you've got a vacant lot that you can grow a garden and some rabbit and chickens in, there's going to be five knocks on your door in 20 minutes. Do you have a, a business license? Do you have, is your building, you know, zone commercial? Is, you know, uh, do you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, OSHA employee, you know, sort of thing. And, and so we have, we have tons of entrepreneurs around our country that can't access our food system because it's not a whosoever will system. It's a very, you know, it's a very uh, elitist system with food police and regulators and bureaucracy and all that stuff. And they compost very well as well. <clears throat> so here, here's, so, so again, again, let me just reiterate. I'm not saying that you're in sin if you eat a Snickers bar. You probably are if you eat three a day. <clears throat> the 80-20 rule. Okay, 80-20 rule. Do 80% intentional, 20% gives you license to go enjoy the birthday party with your three-year-old niece and pig out on junk once in a while. Because you can take this, and I know plenty of people, and probably you do too, who have taken this and run with it. Okay, I don't want that, I, I don't want you to miss that. Or I don't want you to get that from this. But I am challenging us. I am suggesting that we need to be able to have a discussion without boxing each other in. We need to be able to, to wrestle with this. God wants us to wrestle with the truth. He wants us to wrestle with his ideas and with how we should then live, as Francis Schaefer said. So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Does God care? Does God care? We know, he says, I know the hairs of your head are numbered, and he's got a lot less work to do with me now. He says, Matthew 10, he says, I know when the sparrows fall. If God numbers the hairs of our head and knows when the sparrows fall, do you think he cares about what's on our plate? If we look through the menu on our plate, we have all these wonderful spiritual values that we embrace. The golden rule, be kind to your neighbor, sanctity of life, respect of individuality, all those kinds of things. These are all really wonderful spiritual truths that we try to present to our culture. Order, patterns, family order, sexual order, different things, okay? And if we look through the food on our plate... at what produced it, how it was produced, the values that brought it to our plate, do they line up? Does our menu line up with what we say we believe in the pew? That's the question. That's the question. And I believe we in the Christian and the faith community, we have squandered our high road of being the repository of stewardship of God's caretakers of the earth. Yes, were a lot of these early, yes, they, they were creation worshipers. They, they, they wanted to care things because they worshiped the creation. But we need to be in contradistinction to that, and we need to own stewardship because we worship the creator 
And as an act of worship to the Creator, we care whether there's more soil, whether there's more drinkable water, whether there's more breathable air, whether our food actually has nutrition in it. And in doing so, we can own that high road to bring object lessons to our neighbors and our community. That's the first challenge. Does God care? And I say that he does. I think he cares about everything. There's nothing that's outside of God's caring purview. That doesn't mean that I walk around like in a straitjacket, okay? Oh, I can't do anything, can't do anything, can't do anything. No, no. But it means that just as we came to Christ for the redemptive capacity, the freedom, the liberty that we had in Christ to be freed from the entanglements of sin, we can embrace earth stewardship as a freedom from the bondage of a nefarious agenda that views food and life as fundamentally mechanical, as fundamentally wellness coming out of a syringe, as fundamentally wearing out land and wearing out farms and depleting aquifers and destroying pollinators and all sorts of things. I think God cares about all that. Next, I got three challenges. One is, does God care? Yes, I think he does. Next is, am I limiting God? This is, this is one of the most profound um, uh, things in my life that, that, that I wrestle with. Psalm 78, 41, talking about the legacy of the, of the Israelites. Yes, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Is God wanting to do something in my life that I'm limiting Him to do? Now, I don't want to get in a big theological debate about sovereignty and all that stuff, okay? But I'm just taking it as its word. Am I limiting? Does God want to do something in me? Does God want, does God want me to be able to represent something to my neighbors, to my friends? Does He want me to do that and I am because of the way I'm living, because of the decisions that I'm making, am I limiting his capacity? Let me share a quick story. I've been asked to, I've spoken twice at UC Berkeley. Now, if you know anything about UC Berkeley, you know they're not our kind of people. <laughs> the last time I went there, several years ago, um, I, I, I had, I don't know, what, 250, 300 students there, graduate students actually. And, uh, and I, I did my whole dog and pony show, you know, creation, um, sanctity of life. I, I don't wear this on my sleeve, but it just comes out as part, you know, I never say luck. I say blessing, you know, and, but, but, I, but I invoke God, you know, God created this, you know, we, God's land. Uh, we honor God in this, blah, blah, blah. And I uh, got done, and the students jumped to their feet, gave me a standing ovation. We got done, you know, went outside. And the two professors, as soon as we got out on the street, it was dark. You know, it was an evening thing, presentation. Got outside in the street, and the two professors immediately got on the sidewalk, and they ran around in front of me and stopped me under a street light and said, um, I thought, this is weird. And they said, we've got a confession. Oh, boy. You know, this is different. Conf okay, so what? They said, we knew what you were going to say. He said, ever since Vietnam, because the, you know, the Vietnam War uh, protest started at UC Berkeley, the campus started a, a brand of where when a speaker comes and says something that the students don't like, the students, like snakes, they hiss, venom, I don't like you. I mean, this is really hospitality expressed. And they said, they said, they looked at me and they said, you are the first speaker we have ever heard in our 20 years at campus who ever invoked the name God respectfully. Now, if you want to, you know, swear, that's fine. Kids love it, you know, and they all, ah, it's great, you know. We said, we've never heard a speaker invoke the name God reverently without being hissed until tonight. And it struck me, maybe this was the first time those students heard a Christian 
who was willing to wrestle, wrestle with physical stewardship as an object lesson of spiritual truth. And it struck me how much we in the faith community, wouldn't it be neat if the world said, those Christians, man, they love honeybees. They love earthworms. They love soil. Look at them. They're not drinking Coke. They're drinking kombucha. Okay? And they're healthy. Look at their immune systems. Because they're eating nutrition. And they actually care about whether pigs are honored. Wouldn't it be neat if we owned that? And we would have equity. And finally, 2 Corinthians 7.14. I know we're very familiar with it. 2 Corinthians 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and help them uh, organize their systematic theology. (laughs) What does it say? And I will heal their land. And that's a comprehensive healing. It's not just soil. It's social. It's political. Heal their land. My final challenge is... How can I help heal our land in all of its richness, all of its comprehensiveness? How can I help heal our land? Let us pray. Our Lord, thank you for giving us this time together. Forgive me for going over in time. But Lord, touch us, we pray, with a deep abiding heart to take care of what is yours, to represent to our neighbors and our friends a stewardship beyond doctrine, beyond cultural, but as a framework of ethics and morals that we can build on to bring people to you. Bless us through that, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.